1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting at verse 23. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for both the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I am referring to the other person's conscience, not yours, for why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example, as I follow the example of Christ. All day, uh, every day, we are making choices about what we're going to do as Christians. So you're going to decide whether you're going to watch a particular film, whether you're going to drink uh, an alcoholic drink, whether you're going to go to a particular club with your friends, how you're going to use your own sense of humor, how you're going to be entertained by somebody else's sense of humor. There's all sorts of ways. Every single day, when you are exercising your freedom as a Christian. That's not to say that God's word doesn't give us clear parameters we're thinking about some of those in our morning service. If you're with us this morning, we're digging into the moral law of God in the Ten Commandments. And we have glorious, God-centered, therefore objective, moral standards by which we are called to live as God's people. And as we're going to see over the course of the next few months in Exodus, the detail of those commandments spreads out into lots of areas of life. But even when you've carefully worked out all of that detail, there is still all sorts of areas of freedom. You might call it Christian liberty. So how do you decide in the big and small decisions that you have to make during the course of every day where you can't just point to one particular verse in the Bible and be absolutely sure this is the only thing that you should do? How do you decide how to live out your Christian freedom. That's what we're going to be thinking about this evening. Now, if you think about our culture today, our culture would answer that question, how do you exercise your freedom, the very same way that the Corinthians would answer that question. It's all based on me and my rights, my inalienable Rights. We've seen this a couple of times already. If you just flip back to chapter 6, hopefully when Sam read the beginning of our passage this evening, you thought, I'm sure we've read that somewhere before. And you're right, we have. Chapter 6, verse 12, Paul has already engaged with this thinking that exists in Corinth. I have the right to do 
anything. And in the context in chapter 6, that's the way they think about sexual intimacy. I can just do whatever I want. You get to chapter 10, and they've got this same attitude. I have the right to do anything, this time in the context of what they can eat. I have the right to do anything. That's the way our world works, right? It's, it's about me. It's about my rights, and I am free to do whatever I choose. So you can take me or leave me, but this is what I'm doing. Now imagine if we spent time chit-chatting amongst ourselves. All of you could think of examples of how you've seen that kind of freedom lived out over the past week in, in your office, in your neighborhood, perhaps in your friendship circles. What's more scary, perhaps, is that, sadly, we often see the same decision-making process in the church. And people might wrap up their thinking with a theological conviction. They might even be able to point to a, a Bible verse that says, well, this is what the Bible says I'm allowed to do. Therefore, I'm doing it. And there can be a, a really abrupt way of implementing Christian freedom that's quite bruising and ungracious. Well, what we're going to look at this evening is a better way to live out our freedom. Paul describes for us a gospel framework. And I mean that not because you just add the word gospel in front of everything, but the way that we live out our freedom points people towards Jesus. That's what we're going to see this evening. And what we're going to do is we are going to work through the passage that we've looked at, but we're also going to dip back to chapter 6 so that hopefully you will leave this evening with a really clear framework for living out the two great commandments. Who can remind me what Jesus said were the two greatest commandments? Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Thank you, Mr. Shilliday. And, and love your neighbor as yourself. Excellent. There's a big summary of the moral law of God. How do you do that on the ground? Paul gives us five principles for how we use our freedom to live out those two great commandments. That's what we're going to see. So if you have got 1 Corinthians 6 in front of you, First principle is only do what's beneficial. Now, chapter 6, if you can remember what we were looking at in that passage, Paul's focusing on the individual. He's thinking about of all the things that you could do and perhaps are legally allowed to do, what is going to be good for you? What is going to help you grow as a Christian? When you get into chapter 10... Paul gets rid of this horribly selfish idea of I have the right to do everything. Again, by saying not everything is beneficial. In the context in chapter 10, I think he's looking outwards. It's the same response, but now he doesn't just want you to think, what's going to be helpful for me? He wants you to think, what's going to be beneficial? What's going to be helpful for other people? That's principle number one. We're going to race through these, then we're going to do some worked examples. Um, back in chapter 6, principle number 2 only do what won't master you. Chapter 6 and verse 12, I have the right to do anything, is their response. Paul says, but I won't be mastered by anything. 
You might be free to do something now, but if you look down the line, you can see that if you engage in this today, it's going to become a snare to you and will eventually control you. And that is as varied as the struggles of each of our hearts are different. I think when we were looking at this passage a few weeks ago, I think I talked about computer gaming and how it's, you know, it's not, in, you can play sinful games, don't get me wrong, but gaming itself is not a sinful activity, but it can become controlling in that you become addicted to it. Same is true in all sorts of other ways. So maybe for you, actually, you could be mastered by exercise. You could be mastered by trying to get certain grades or particular promotion in your career. You could be mastered by a fixation on getting your house to look in a particular way. There are all sorts of things where it's not a wrong thing to begin, but as you throw your heart into it and get lost in it, you've become mastered by it, and now it's a problem. See the difference between beneficial and being mastered by something? It's a bit of a longevity issue, okay? Principle number three. Only do what builds others up. Now we're in chapter 10 and verse 23. I think in the NIV we've got... Um, uh, make sure that nothing, sorry, everything is constructive. If you've got the ESV, that's been translated, not all things build up. And if you look at the times that Paul uses that phrase in this letter, he's always thinking of others when he uses it. So the question isn't just, is it beneficial for me or for you? Or am I going to be mastered and controlled by it? The question is, is the way that I exercise my freedom going to build other people up in their faith. And Paul's really clear about that in verse 24, isn't he? No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Who are the others? Anyone who might be influenced by you selfishly exercising your freedom only for your own good. So if anyone's going to be hurt by, if anyone's going to be hindered by you focusing on your own rights and benefits, then that's a problem because you're not building others up in the way that you live out your freedom. And this is one of the many ways in which Christian freedom looks completely different to the world. The world doesn't give two hoots about whether somebody else is going to be hurt or struggle because of the way that we exercise our freedom. In fact, thinking like that just shows you haven't quite got what true freedom's all about. But we're commanded to have a genuine concern for how we can bless and build up other people. The hard thing about that is how do you know if you're actually doing it? <laughs> it's really hard to, to see that principle and think, well, am I living that way? So here's a little diagnostic question to just take a note of and have a think about during the course of this week. How have you altered your plans in the last week in order to be a blessing to somebody else? It's a good one to just simmer over for a little while. How have you altered your plans over the course of the past week in order to do what was best for someone else? It's quite a challenging question. It might be challenging because you look back and you think, I can't think that I've actually done anything for anyone else because I'm not really connected to anyone else. And there might be a, a really helpful learning point there to think maybe my first step is to start folding my life into other people so that I can actually do this well. 
But I think for a lot of us, probably that question is going to make us think, I don't often think about how the way I exercise my freedom might be done differently in order to be a blessing to other people. All too often, we're still fighting against our sinful nature, aren't we? Still living like the world. And, and this is where God's word opens up to us a grace-driven way of living out our freedom. Principle number four. Only do what will help others be saved. Only do what will help others be saved. In chapter 10, verse 32, verse 33, do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. If you remember a few weeks ago when Matthew was in chapter 9, we were looking at the flexibility that Paul showed when he's on mission. He is never, ever compromising in an area of principle. But when it comes to practice, he bends and flexes and changes as much as he possibly can in order to win as many as possible for the gospel. So if you go back to chapter 9, and verse 20. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. Meaning he went back to adopting all those Jewish customs, even though he's now free of all of them. Why? Well, hold on. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, so as to win those under the law. Verse 22, to the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, I might save some. And all of those four horizontal principles are lived out under the great vertical principle. That is Paul's fifth principle, verse 31. Only do what brings glory to God. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. In the way that we think about what we're going to do and, and of all the things that we could do, choosing what we're going to do, we are to bring glory to God. We are to deny ourselves and live lives of self-control. We're to be thinking about others so that they would come to see how uniquely glorious God is. If you think about how countercultural this way of thinking about freedom is, in the world's eyes, I choose what I want to do, and it's my right to do so, so you've just got to lump it. When a Christian thinks about how to choose what he or she is going to do, they look through the lens of the gospel and think, how can I make a decision in such a way that you are going to see that my rights are not the most important thing here? The most important thing is that you would see that whether God gives me one particular thing or not, my life is to bring glory to him. It is to serve you by showing you how he is all-sufficient. So that whatever may happen in my life, whatever providence he brings in or takes out, I know that his grace is sufficient, and I want you to see that. Such that I'm not insisting on my rights. There may be times when I can do the things that I would perhaps like to do, but there are other times when I choose to forego those things, and that is fine because God is bigger than the one or two specific things that I might be thinking about here. All of that helps us see that actually... All of this is about 
Jesus. All of what we're thinking about here is showing us how we can follow, verse 1 of chapter 11, follow Paul's example as he follows the example of Jesus. These principles are not just random. It's not some ethical framework that's just engraved in some celestial slab in heaven and we've got to do it this way. All of these principles are showing us what it means to follow Jesus. What did Jesus do? Everything that was beneficial for others. Never once caused a stumbling block to anyone else. He gave up everything that he had in order to save other people and build them up in their faith. And he did all of it to bring glory to God. So when you think about how do I live as a Christian, it's not, oh, I'm pretty sure that James talked about this long list of principles and I've got to work through all of them and it's really tedious. Why can't I just... All of these principles help us to see the love and the heart of the Savior who bled and died for us such that we would become more like him. And when we have a freedom to choose to do one thing or another, our decision-making process is shaped by the Savior who died for us. That's the big principle. Now, what does all of that look like in real-world examples? Well, Paul gives us a lived, worked example when he talks about what they're supposed to do with their food that's offered to idols. And last week, if you're with us, um, we looked in verses 14 to 22 at his really clear instruction that if you're ever in a religious festival for another god, you must never, ever, ever eat. Because to do so is to bind yourself with the spiritual force at work behind a man-made, non-existent idol that can't do anything for you. So you must never eat in that circumstance any of the food that's offered in that religious environment. But what about everywhere else? It's a significant part of all the food that was brought into these pagan temples was then sent out to the meat markets. And when you think about it, that's a really deliberate strategy by the temple because they're going to use the proceeds of sale to fund the work of the temple. So you've got a very real question for these Corinthians. What am I allowed to eat in the market? What am I supposed to eat? Verse 27, if I'm off to somebody else's house and I don't know what they're going to be offering, they're the questions that are ringing in Paul's mind. We've got this really clear, you don't ever do it here. And now we've got the What do we do in all these other circumstances? Now, before we look at the text, I want you to stop and think what you imagine Paul might say. So bearing in mind how serious it is that you don't eat meat that's offered in a temple. Because to do so, it would be to engage in idolatry. And remember that Paul's a Jew. Paul was raised as a Jew, and not just as a Jew, but as a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was as serious and committed as any Jew could possibly be. Do you know how Jews chose their meat? Everything had to be kosher. They could only eat meat from certain animals. They could only eat that meat if it was prepared in accordance with the Levitical laws. So if you're a Jew, like Paul and you go down to the meat market, you are absolutely 
going to check that it's the right animal, that it's been prepared in the right way, and that you are free to eat it. So what's Paul told them in the temple, and what's Paul's experience been for his entire life, as has been the case for all of the Jews before him? How's he going to respond? Now that Christ has fulfilled all of the Old Testament law and there is freedom for us in Christ, what does he say? Verse 25, if you're on your own, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Is that incredible? Can you imagine how significant a game shift that would be for all of these faithful Jewish men and women who'd lived their entire lives being so careful to keep God's laws. Here's Paul saying, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So just enjoy it. If you're on your own, if you're just eating food that you've bought from the market, every single piece of food is part of God's good gift in this world. So you can enjoy it. The problem, you see, isn't the meat The problem is the way that it binds you and associates you with idolatry. So as soon as you're out of that setting and there's none of that religious connotation going on, the meat itself isn't the issue. It's the idolatry that's the problem. So thank God, verse 30, thank God for your food and eat it. Don't don't ask questions about where it's come from. Not because... And and perhaps this will help us as we go a little bit later. Not because if you ask a question, somebody tells you the answer, then you're in a pickle. Don't think that's where Paul's coming from. I don't think he's saying, if you go down to the meat market and you say to the butcher, was this offered at Artemis' temple? And he says yes. Now you're in a bind because you don't know whether you should buy the meat or not. I think what he's trying to say is conscience isn't the issue. Because the source of the meat is immaterial. If you're just buying food from the market, all good things in this world are God's. So if you're away from any scene of idolatry, enjoy the food and tuck in. But that freedom, here's the kicker, is not an inflexible, inalienable, meaning it never ever changes, right. And this is how everything changes when you're a Christian. You see that if you go to a friend's house. That's the scenario that um, Paul's describing here. So if you turn up, nobody mentions anything about where the food comes from. Paul says, eat whatever's put in front of you without raising questions of conscience. Because this meal isn't an act of religious worship. You're just enjoying food together. All food is God's gift So give thanks. Maybe if you're in somebody else's house who's not a Christian, you might do that quietly and enjoy it. But that changes, verse 28, if someone says, this food's been offered in sacrifice. And if that happens, you mustn't eat. Oh, crumbs, how many caveats are there here? Why? Why does that make a difference? The food itself hasn't changed. You could have eaten the same food on your own or in your mate's house if they hadn't mentioned anything of it, and you'd be fine. The food hasn't changed. And the idol hasn't changed. The idol to whom the meat was offered in the sacrifice is still a completely dead, lifeless, man-made, non-existent entity. The idol hasn't changed. 
And here's another important step. Your conscience hasn't changed because of what they've shared either. And Paul's really, really clear about this. And what I mean by that is, it's not that now you know that this meat was offered to idols, you shouldn't eat the meat because there's something contaminated in the meat itself, spiritually speaking. The conscience that's at issue isn't yours. It's the others. Look in verse 29. The conscience that is at risk here, verse 29, I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. So what is it that's changed? It's not the food, it's not the idol, it's not your conscience. It's principles three and four. Only do what builds others up and only do what will help others be saved. See, what's at stake now isn't the stake itself. It's whether your behavior is going to become a stumbling block to somebody else. Now the issue is not the food. Now the issue is you're at this table with, and Paul's not clear, we don't know whether this is non-Christian who's raised the question or a young Christian who's raised the question. You can make arguments in either way, we're not told. But whoever it is, they are looking at you now and saying, now that you know this, are you going to participate in what has become something more of a religious activity? It was just a meal. But now you know that this food's been offered to idols. And this person doesn't have your maturity to know everything we were looking at last week about who idols are. So they're looking at you saying, now what do Christians do in this circumstance? Do you share food with idols too? And Paul says, because that's what's going on, you have to not eat. So the principle, if you can see how it's all being lived out, is that in some settings, you eat the meat without any question or concern. And in other settings, you don't. Not because the meat's changed, the idol's changed, or your conscience has changed, but because of somebody else's conscience. You are changing what you do to be a blessing to somebody else. Mark Dever has a lovely phrase to capture this. He says, um, we curtail our liberty, not out of legalism, but out of love for God and for one another. Meaning, as Christians, we're free. And the reason that we curtail, the reason we restrict our freedom is not because we're legalistically trying to do a source check on where things have come from and be very pharisaical in what we're doing. It's out of love to protect other people and to bring glory to God. Now, I want to um, think about some contemporary applications in just a minute. But before we get there, I want to ask a really important question because it will impact whether you choose to put these principles into practice. If you think about watching on and, and looking at Paul eat, what are you going to see? You're going to see times when Paul, when he's on his own or when he's with a group of friends, would eat all of this meat without asking a simple question. And you're going to see other times when he's, eating the, sorry, he's offered the same meat and he doesn't eat it. And if you're looking on from the outside, you might think, well, Paul's a bit of a hypocrite, isn't he? He's a bit inconsistent in what he's doing. And if you look at these principles 
and you think about how they might change the way that you behave, there are going to be times when you might do something and times when you might not. And you might be left thinking, everybody's just going to tell me I'm a hypocrite. I don't know what I'm doing. I was really helped this week by another pastor who said, think of a weather vane. Okay? Sometimes the weather vane is pointing in one direction, and then the weather vane is pointing in another direction. Is the weather vane inconsistent? Honest question. No. Why not? What is the weather vane showing you? Where the wind is going. It's consistently showing you the direction of something that's changing. And in a similar way, we should be thinking about our freedom such that we don't have hard and fast rules that we will always, always do this one thing unless that is in accordance with the moral law of God. We're talking here about the freedom areas of gray where we need to exercise some liberty. There are going to be times where we will do things one way and times when we will do it another way. That is not an act of inconsistency. It's an evidence of maturity where we are forgoing and adjusting our freedom in order to be beneficial, not be mastered, to make sure that we are building others up, to bring others to Christ, to bring glory to God. Okay, let's try and live out some of those principles in very real examples. Um, I've got three. Perhaps the first parallel that might come to your mind is halal meat. You might not have had it in your mind, and now you're thinking, oh, maybe I should have had it in my mind. Um, who can remember? I think it was 12, 13 years ago. There was a big hoo-ha um, in the run-up to Christmas. I don't know whether that was a factor or not. When a number of supermarkets got in trouble because they were found out for supplying halal meat but not labeling it as such. Anybody remember that? It was quite, it was quite an event, wasn't it? And um, it, the news coverage got a little bit bigger because... Lots of the big supermarkets, and it was the big supermarkets, um, they began by saying, no, 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 we're not, we're not sourcing and, and selling any halal meat. And only you know, days or whatever it was later to admit that actually they had been um, selling halal uh, lamb or um, chicken. How do Christians respond in those kinds of situations? Now, leaving aside the fact that no seller of anything should be deceitful, that's its own ethical question. And leaving aside a question of how we show love for God's creation by ensuring that any animals we kill for food, we do so in a kind and a good way. And there's all sorts of debate to be had about that in a halal world and in a non-halal world. But leaving those two big issues aside, can you see how Paul would apply 1 Corinthians 10 to that situation? In our country in our supermarkets. I think he would very clearly say, look, if you're going to a supermarket and you don't know where the foods come from, you are free to buy whatever meat is on offer because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So give thanks for the gifts that he gives you and enjoy the food. And if you're in a house with a Muslim friend and they offer you a really lovely meal, you don't need to ask where the meat has come from. You can enjoy it. But there is a question that we will each have to decide in our own consciences that arises because when a Muslim slaughterer kills an animal, they recite a brief Arabic blessing, prayer, to Allah. And for some Christians, 
that is so close to an act of idolatry that would be going on in a pagan festival that if you ever know that you're about to eat halal meat, or perhaps if you're with somebody who shares a similar conscience, then you're looking at these principles in verses 27 and 28. And you're thinking about whether there are times when you shouldn't eat that meat. And over all of those decisions, your big goal is not to just have one particular response to this one particular issue. It's how do you bring glory to God and be a blessing to other people which may be different at different times. That's one example. Number two, uh, let's take films for an example. So every single one of us is going to come to a point of uh, contentment about the amount of violence, as an example, that we might be happy watching in a film. Whether it's a slapstick, muck on the side of a cheek, or anything else, you'll come to a conclusion about that. I hope that all of us as Christians keep hearing God's word and the principles that should govern everything that we watch. Is it bringing glory to God? Is this something that is helping me in growing as a Christian? Is this something that I am being ensnared by? I think we need to be really alert to the fact that the more you watch of something, the more it desensitizes your conscience to other things. And we need to be careful about that slope. But you'll get to a point, once you've prayerfully worked through all of that, where you're comfortable with whatever level of violence you might be comfortable watching in a film. But as soon as your children come into the room, or when you're inviting other people into your home, you should be asking more questions. What is going to be beneficial to them? What is it going to be helpful for them to see me as a Christian watching so that they would continue to understand what it means to be a Christian? What you're going to watch may be different at different times. Third example, drinking alcohol. Got some clear instructions in God's word. God tells us we must never, ever be drunk. In fact, not only that, we must never lose our self-control. But within those limits, we're free to enjoy alcohol if we choose to. That doesn't mean that we've got a right to insist on that whenever we're with any of our friends, be they Christians or not, we insist on having a drink. You might be with a Christian friend who's come to a different conclusion on the matter. You might be with somebody who's recovering from a former addiction. There are all sorts of reasons why it is infinitely better to forego a glass of Rioja in order to be a blessing to somebody else, in order to build them up in their faith, in order not to stop them from being able to come to faith. There are going to be times when you would act in one way and times when you'd act in another. So do you see how we need to change at times? It's not because we're trying to fit with some complicated ethical system that's got 14 subclauses and you can't get your head around it unless you're a lawyer. It's because the way we live out our freedom as Christians is supposed to show other people that we're in relationship with God himself and want to be a blessing in our relationships to them. That's why all of this, it's not boring legalism, it's lived relationship that is to be a blessing. 
That's why all of it is about us being like Jesus. Are you, am I, this week, are we going to willingly give up some things in order to mirror the Lord Jesus who gave up everything for us? Are we willingly going to empty ourselves of some of the things that otherwise are ours to enjoy in order that others would come to see the Lord Jesus as their Savior? That's what mature Christians do. They're not selfish. They're sacrificial. They are on mission and they are on mission all the time in every decision that you make during the course of this week. Wherever you've got an opportunity to live out your liberty, your freedom as Christians, don't think, this is my right, I get to do it my way, that's why Jesus died. No, he didn't. He died so that you could live out your freedom in a way that is a blessing to yourself, to others, and brings glory to God.